0: Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast for today. Influential journalist and professor Jeff Jarvis of Buzz Machine joins me to talk about what's happening down under with the Internet and why Canada might be screwed because of it. Plus, later on, we'll talk with Selena Caesar Chavin about her new book and why she left the Liberal Party. Let's get to it. I am all turned around, and there are these annoying noises everywhere. Google looks weird. It doesn't find the things I think it should. There's no more news on my Facebook feed. Has the world turned upside down? Or am I just down under? A momentous decision in Australia regarding tech giants Facebook and Google and what Facebook has done is reverberating around the world, and that deal is being very closely watched here in Canada. It's going to have an implication on you, and how you consume news, and how you use social media. Coming up, influential writer and professor Jeff Jarvis is going to join me to explain why he says, and this is a quote from him, Canada is effed because of this deal. That is coming up on the Alan Carter Radio Program here on Global News Radio. But first, what is that sound? It's a kind of a screeching. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. Thank you, Doug Ford, of course. That is Doug Ford in the legislature yesterday where he accused the leader of the Ontario opposition of sounding like nails on a chalkboard. Is that what I hear? Is is that the sound, or is it just the 21st century outrage machine? Is it just gotcha politics in high gear? Or has the 800-pound gorilla this time gone too far?
1: I'm going to come down on them like an
0: 800-pound gorilla. Whoa, look out! An 800-pound gorilla at a chalkboard. Maybe that's the sound I hear.
1: It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard
0: listening to you. Maybe it's the sound of the so-called emergency break being thrown in the province of Ontario. Do you know what that is? You know what that is? This is the thing that the government is promising us is going to save us from rampaging VOCs, the variants of concern that are spreading throughout the province and everybody is worried about, except for we don't know... What would cause an emergency break to be thrown? But, you know, maybe that's the sound we hear. Or, possibly, if you listen closely, maybe that high-pitched whine is just the sound of Ontarians giggling and tee-heeing when they hear their Minister of Health proclaim this.
2: What we're looking at is not a reopening. We're looking at a transition back to the framework that we had before the stay-at-home order was brought forward.
0: What we are looking at is not a reopening, it's a transition to a framework. Yes, I know. Look, I know that that store that sells non-essential items, there you get your fancy candles, your scented candles, that it is now once again open again with restricted access. But we're not reopening. No, it's a transition to a framework. Maybe that's the sound we're hearing. Or maybe it's the sound of Ontarians just simply pulling out their hair, listening to medical experts disagree, politicians bicker, and watch them play games. And again and again, we go back to the hyperbole well.
2: As a public health physician, I've never been as concerned about the threat of COVID-19 to your health as I am now. Not at any other point in the pandemic.
0: Oh, great. Just fantastic. Dr. Eileen Davila, the medical officer of health for Toronto, never has been more concerned. And of course, the good doctor, along with her counterpart in Peel, Dr. Lowe, they have sent letters to Dr. Williams, who is the chief medical officer of health in the province of Ontario, asking, please, delay any reopening wait a second it's not a reopening it's a transition wait d- delay any transitioning till at least March 9th and coming up today we are going to hear from good old Doc Williams and maybe we'll get an answer We'll get an answer with if that is exactly what is going to happen a, a darker shade of gray Oh good thanks Doc. BT dub uh, BT dub Toronto's case numbers today which is the first day that we've not had a data problem, a data migration problem. Data anomaly! Which has been rendering all the numbers completely meaningless. But here's a key number today. Toronto's number, case numbers, up to 376, up from 257 yesterday. So is it just hyperbole from Dr. Davila? Keep in mind, you know, we've heard this kind of you know, oh, my goodness, it's, oh, it's horrible, you know, and it's it's got a diminishing impact on people. And we're all tired, and it, it's hard to hear that from Dr. Davila, especially when, especially when I talked about Dr. Davila and Dr. Lowe in Peel region, but Dr. Kareem Kurji in York region is going a completely different direction. Maybe that's the sound I hear, me just shrieking. And the fact that the doctor just north of Toronto says, quote, we prefer to look at the whole community as our patient, and he continues on to say, it is clear businesses are suffering greatly, and with that comes loss of jobs and incomes and important social determinant of health. We are seeing social isolation leading to mental illness. Wow, so the doctor north of the city is saying something completely different than the doctor in Toronto and the doctor in Peel. Maybe that's the sound I hear. It's really more of a high-pitched whine, though, that sound, isn't it? It's a high-pitched whine, like the noise coming from MPP Roman Baber, who stuck out his tongue at the legislature yesterday. The MPP uh, put forward a private member's bill. Now, you may recall he has been booted from the PC caucus because he opposes the lockdown. And he I, I suspect he's probably probably in favor of what Dr. Kergy is saying. Uh, that sort of, you know, lines up with many of the things that MPP Baber is saying. So he put forward a proposal in the legislature, said... Oh, yeah? Okay, we're going to have a lockdown? Well, we should cut everybody's salary in this room, all the MPPs. We should all cut our salary down to Serb levels, just Serb levels only. Because if you're going to make sure that everybody else can't work, then we should be able to only take that kind of money. And you know, the House turns around and says, well, we're not going to say no to that, but here's what we'll do. We're going to say unanimously, all of us together, we're going to cut your pay. We're going to cut your pay. And here is MPP Baber on this radio program.
1: This PC government, the Doug Ford government, which used to make light out of the situation by, by bringing this, this mischievous, essentially,
2: maneuver, is disrespectful to the House. It is disrespectful to the people of Ontario. And it's utterly disrespectful to the many thousands, to the hundreds of thousands of Ontarians that are
1: suffering right now, economically and otherwise, because of this lockdown. Shame on them.
0: That is Roman Baber on this radio program, reacting to the unanimous the unanimous motion, pardon me, in the House to have his salary cut. It, it doesn't it doesn't stand. It was a joke. But let me just take this back to, to uh, the MPP. Uh, hey, dude, dude, it's not shameful. You just tried to embarrass the government, and you got smacked. So suck it up, right? And a pox on all your houses. I mean, what are you doing in there? You know, we got you. Cho- you know, nails on a chalkboard. That takes up the you know media oxygen for 24 hours. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard. What are you. we talking about? Why are we not dealing with the issue at hand? By the way, by the way, if Doug Ford had said that to Roman Baber, Hit it one more time. It's like listen yeah.
1: to nails on a chalkboard listening to you.
0: It's enough. He'd said that <laughs> to his uh, renegade MPP who has been chucked out of the caucus. Would anybody have raised an eyebrow? I don't think so. See there, I fixed it. I fixed it. So that screeching sound that we all hear, I think, is not nails on a chalkboard. It is the grating on our nerves as we try and navigate as the public. Like, how do we navigate the information that we're getting? We have the health table saying, well, we shouldn't do any kind of a reopening because the variants of concern are on the march and it's going to go crazy. And then you've got, uh, well, play that Christine Elliott for me one more time, if you could. This is the what response we're looking
2: the at era. is not a reopening. We're not looking a reopening. at a transition back to transition. the framework that we had before the, the stay-at-home order was brought yeah. forward.
0: Yeah, that's, that's not a reopening. Yeah, the store's open, but that's not a reopening. You are seeing things. What? So there's that. There's that that doesn't seem to line up. And, and then you got Dr. Davila. Again, hit me again with the Dr. Davila. This, this is enough to make your coffee go cold.
2: As a public health physician, I've never been as concerned oh, about the threat good. of COVID-19 mm-hmm. to your health mm-hmm. as I am now. Not well, at any other point in the pandemic.
0: I, I have a I have a sneaking suspicion she's gonna say that exact same thing in about three weeks. And every time she says it, it means less. I don't disagree. I just I'm saying we're all tired. And if if, if these health experts and the province can't start singing from the same page, well everybody's singing their own tune. That is the screeching sound I hear. Facebook is being heavily criticized all around the world today following its sudden decision to block news content in Australia amid a dispute over whether the social media company should be required to pay for stories and Australians woke up to find they were unable to view or share news items on their Facebook feeds. Australia is leading a global push by the media industry and governments to force digital platforms to share advertising money they collect through the use of news content, and that is underway here in this country as well. Media companies around the world, and including here in Canada, including the company that owns this radio station, have been complaining that they're losing crucial ad revenue with much of it going online. Now, at the same time that that happened with Facebook in Australia... A much different outcome with Google. Google has announced that it has agreements now to pay publishers in Australia, organizations like Rupert Murdoch's News Corps. The details of those uh, de- uh, details of those financial agreements have not been disclosed. Journalist and associate professor Jeff Jarvis runs the very influential blog Buzz Machine, and in a lengthy post, a Twitter fe- Twitter uh, post thread, pardon me, yesterday, which was widely shared. He said that this was media blackmail, this deal, and also went on to say that Canada is screwed because we have a news oligopoly of incompetent owners and politicians in league with them. I'm pleased to welcome to the program Jeff Jarvis. Welcome. Thank you. Why do you say that uh, Canada is so screwed because of what is happening in Australia?
1: Because your uh, minister of heritage is now looking enviously at the Australian law and talking about having it in Canada. And it is a disaster for the Internet, first and foremost, for the new voices that come on the Internet, and in the long run for journalism as well. It's probably a good thing for media owners, thus hedge funds, but pretty much no one else.
0: You decry the this deal between Google uh, and the various news organizations in Australia as big tech blinking.
1: Yeah, I think that Google just said, enough, okay, we'll give you some money. It's bakshish, it's bribery money, it's blackmail. It's them saying, because news isn't that valuable to Google or Facebook. Uh, Publishers think that they have so much value. Facebook has has said often that news is less than 4% of usage on Facebook. Google makes no money on Google News. It's new news showcase is not a way to make money. It's a way to pay off, uh, the publishers. And what you see now is publishers have entitlement as their primary business strategy. Well, you should pay us because we're wonderful. Well, in the United States, trust in news has been falling since the seventies. And I'm a journalism professor. And I'm set to say that, but it's true. We have problems in journalism and we're not admitting it. We need to clean our own house. In full disclosure, I was uh, years ago, I was on the Digital Advisory Board for Post Media, a bunch of very nice people, but I saw just how far behind Canadian media like American media was in trying to adapt to the Internet, and it's our own damn fault that we didn't.
0: So you're saying that the, the push by these traditional media companies is an attempt to put a brake on, on progress and try, try and make up for their own slow response to a new digital world?
1: Yeah, it's protectionism. It is. It is what, what upsets me most as a journalist is we see journalism enterprises cashing in their political capital because of the journalism and lobbying with the government officials they should be watchdogging and trying to now come up with protectionist legislation in their benefit against the platforms because the platforms are now, inconveniently for them, disliked. Made that way, let's be clear, by media. The coverage in media of the Internet has turned into a full dystopian moral panic. And I just looked at the coverage on the Australian papers today, owned by the the duopoly of media in Australia, Murdoch and and Nine. And it's pure propaganda, right? It it, it showed no other view of this. You know, another view that I see on Twitter is that Facebook called their bluff, right? Australia said, pay up or else. And Facebook said, we'll take the RLs. And then the government and the media say, how dare you threaten us? You know, It's it's, it's laughable, except that it's going to hurt the net. You know, here in the United States, it's only because of the Internet and because of social media that we've had Black Lives Matter and a racial reformation in this country. and We've had Me Too, because those stories were not covered in big old media that was controlled by people who look like me, old white men. And so finally the Internet enables voices too long not heard in mass media to be heard. And if Murdoch and company and his his lieutenants in league with him manage to squash these parts of the Internet, it's bad for society as a whole. And so that's what I'm protecting. I, Google and Facebook are far from perfect companies. They're difficult companies in a lot of ways. They're, they're full of hubris. But they're the current proprietors of the Internet. And what disappoints me about Google yesterday is they didn't stand up for the Internet. And, and Facebook, we'll have to see how this plays out.
0: I'm speaking with Jeff Jarvis, who is, the, uh, who is a journalist and professor and runs Buzz Machine, the uh, influential blog post. Uh, the counter argument to this is, is that all that ad revenue that is being sucked up and hoovered up by these companies that don't pay taxes in this, com- in this country, for example, is killing local journalism. And we, we see small papers and small outlets folding, and that is bad for society. How do you react to that?
1: God didn't give you that ad revenue. It's a competitive, capitalistic marketplace, and you've got to compete in it. And believe me, I've worked with news companies. I've spent my whole career in news companies. I brought news sites online starting in in, in the 90s with the web. Uh, I've made it my my passion and career to try to work on this, and I'm frustrated as hell trying to deal with media companies to get them to change. All they want to do is find new ways to pay for their old ways. They don't, as a whole, with exceptions— they don't, as a whole, uh, do a good job of finding other ways to bring in revenue and support the journalism. And so now they're left with you know, begging for it at uh, Oliver Twist's uh, luncheon table, uh, begging government to help them uh, try to get some money out of the platforms. And by the way, if you want to tax the platforms more, fine, but who says that news should be entitled to that money? I would far rather that money go to education, to go to Internet access for the poor, to go to better health care, especially for the communities we see are dying in disproportionate numbers in COVID. There's a lot better uses for that money, I think, than paying what is going to end up being the hedge funds that control most media on this continent.
0: Uh, And is that the way that you would describe this reaction? I'll just read you this reaction from the um, president of News Media Canada, in full disclosure, this uh, this radio station is owned by a company that is a, por- a part of News Media Canada uh, that represents a number of uh, newspapers and other media organizations, and he said this was fantastic news for Canadian publishers. It, to you, that is, again, just protectionism. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And by the way, now now I think what that does to every journalist who covers the Internet in that company, uh, I think the public should look uh, and, and ask what the agenda is behind the coverage. Again, I just saw this happen in Australia. And I'm not suggesting that you are. You're calling me and you're having me come in with a different perspective. Thank you for that. But uh, my point here is that the the news companies are part of this story now. They've now made themselves, thanks to Rupert Murdoch around the world, and thanks to the Heritage Minister now in Canada wanting to copy that, they've made themselves part of the story. They have a conflict of interest that they're not reporting on. And they're trying to get some money. Um, Who owns News Media Canada, by the way?
0: It's an umbrella organization that I, I believe is funded by a number of newspapers, and I'm not certain of the ownership.
1: Right. So I don't. I don't know that company as well. I know Postmedia has hedge funds behind it because that's what they had to do because they were, you know, in trouble. So, so let's say that let's say you get some money from Google and, and Facebook. In the case of of American companies, in the case of um, of Postmedia, probably it's going to go in the pocket of the hedge fund. It's not going to go to the journalism. I haven't seen any assurances in Australia of what wonderful journalism is now going to be done with this media, with this money, rather.
0: Uh, the majority of media companies, the, the main media companies in this country are, are owned by the telecoms. Um, this company that, uh, that I work for is owned by uh, its chorus um, and it has controlling interest with uh, Shaw, although Shaw has divested itself. I have to keep up to date with all of uh, the moving parts. <laughs> hard, isn't
1: it? Yep. It, it, <laughs> it
0: is, and, uh, and I apologize if I'm one step behind, but I, uh, what's the role of telecom and Internet providers who then o- also own media companies, lobbying government, and uh, how does that all work together?
1: That's a, that's a great question. I haven't heard that question before. Uh, in the U.S., we have telecom is also very much involved uh, in, in the industry now. Um Let me be clear. Journalism is critically important. I'm a journalism professor. I believe in journalism. I've started new degrees to teach journalism in new ways. But I think we have to recognize that we live in a new reality, and it's a great new reality. We have the opportunity to hear people who were never heard before. We have the opportunity to serve people in all kinds of new ways. Um, This is going to be a difficult transition, though. That's just the truth of it. We see that already. And unfortunately, many journalists have lost their jobs. Unfortunately, I think that trust has fallen in much of news media. Um, this is going to be a long-term transition. I'm trying to write a book on the Gutenberg age, and it took 150 years after Gutenberg before anyone fought to invent a newspaper. I think we're in a similarly long transition now that's going to be difficult. It's going to be filled with uncertainty, but it's also going to be filled with experimentation and finding new ways to serve the public, and I think that's exciting.
0: Jeff uh, Jeff Jarvis is with us. Uh, he uh, runs Buzz Machine, and just a final question. And I believe this was on your Twitter thread that that part of this you, you suggested that they should put fences up uh, around the legislative building in Australia. I believe that was your post. And could you explain what you mean by that? Obviously, Although you're referring what? to the attack on the U.S. Capitol.
1: Yeah, all all I was saying there was it was it was it, 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 on its own that maybe it doesn't sound so great, but it was part of a context <laughs> of, of the thread that said that I think that if um, People have to give with, give up uh, parts of their internet. Their anger is not going to be directed at the internet companies. It's going to be directed at the politicians who played along with Murdoch. In the case of, uh, and if I sound vitriolic about Murdoch, it's because I've seen him ruin my country. I've seen him ruin families. I've seen, uh, January 6th was his garden party. Donald Trump was his product. Uh, he is the most malign influence in democracy in the English-speaking world, and thank God Canada doesn't have him. But we do hear, the UK does and Australia does. And I've seen what he what he has been doing. And I think it's a time when we in journalism should be cleaning our own house and and talking about the malign influence of Fox News. Instead, now we have Google paying the proprietor of Fox News. We have Rupert Murdoch winning. And that upsets me greatly.
0: Jeff Jarvis, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on today. And thank you. My next guest was the first black MP for Whitby, Ontario, who left the Liberals to sit as an independent back in 2019. Selena Caesar Chaven quit the caucus after fellow Liberals Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott resigned from cabinet over the SNC-Lavalin saga. She'd been a vocal supporter of the pair, who were subsequently booted from the caucus by Justin Trudeau. Ms. Cesar Chauvin was also accused, or rather also accused, Trudeau, of yelling at her when she informed him she would not be seeking a second term, an accusation that the PMO has denied. In her new book, Can You Hear Me Now?, Miss Cesar Chauvin describes her time in Ottawa and her disappointment and her disillusionment with the government that she was part of. Selena Cesar Chauvin joins us on the line now. Welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Alan. Thank you for having me.
0: Congratulations on the book. Why did you want to write this book? What was it important for you to say?
2: Well, it was important for me to document my history, not only in politics, but um, most of the book is my whole life, to be honest, chapters one to nine is the rest of my life outside of politics and the the ending of of it is politics, but really to have my my story documented and documented in a way that... um, that can allow readers to get to know a little bit more about me, but also to understand uh, the, the stories that people say when, what have when they're navigating various systems throughout this country.
0: You write that uh, I never felt so much like a woman, a black person, and mm-hmm. a black woman until I entered politics.
2: Can you expand on yeah. that a little? Yeah, you know... Um, it was. It's very interesting that if if you read those those chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12, and thirteen, describe each of the four years that I was in politics. And I'm not sure when that sentence comes in, Alan. You're, you'll have to you'll have to let me know where that sentence comes in. But you know, the first year feeling really tokenized in my role, especially as parliamentary secretary. The second year. Uh, Really feeling excluded from a lot of very important conversations that PMO, the PM was having, um, especially around black communities. And then the third year, just being completely gaslit um, when it came to having conversations about race and equity. And I'd never experienced that before. Um. And that what,
0: what do you the, mean the being gaslit? Incident. Was that from the PMO and from the Prime Minister himself?
2: No, no, that was that was uh, of course that incident with Maxine Bernier, right? Where um, you call out his
0: privilege case. and then you he just get lit up.
2: That yeah. I was two years early, Alan, on talking about that kind of stuff. So, but 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 the the problem with that is that you know being gaslit is one thing, but not having your own party come in and say, "Let me support you. Let me give you some help when you need it." Um, I, I found that pretty disturbing.
0: You are quite critical of the Prime Minister who you talk about being interested in the accolades, but not necessarily the hard work.
2: Yes. Yeah, I, I am. And I'm still critical of the Prime Minister um, in that in that sense. Um, I think when we're talking about a lot of the issues that are required to bring equity into our system, into our political system, I and mean, to into communities across the country, he's not doing a very good job. He's more interested in performing and taking a knee than he is in actually repealing mandatory minimums or ensuring that there is representation of of Black communities, in particular across all levels of the federal bureaucracy. Um, He's more interested in writing down the words and saying the words that he's woke than he is actually about doing the, the job that's required once you wake up.
0: Uh, you, you write about a speech that you gave at the Toronto Empire Club, I, I believe it was on, the, on behalf of a Minister for International Women's Day, and you had it yeah. scripted. And at the end, you go off script and you ad-libbed. And uh, you, the quote you have is, my feminism isn't for everybody. Not everyone likes black coffee, no sugar, no cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I guess my my question is, in, in parliamentary politics, you know, we have caucus solidarity. We, we You know, government works a certain way with backbenchers supporting the government, so on and so forth. Was it a question that, you know, in, in many ways, your demeanor, not everyone likes black coffee, no sugar, no cream, made it difficult for you to continue to serve with the Liberal government?
2: I don't understand why that was. I mean... The whole idea of feminism is making sure that we're, we're supporting women who need it the most. We're supporting those with multiple intersecting identities that need it the most. And sometimes it requires you to be a little bit bolder. And you have to remember, Alan, that this, that exact message was what the government was peddling in 2015 when they said they wanted to be bold, transformative, government done differently, sunny ways. This was supposed to be something. This was supposed to be a government that was what was going against the grain. So the fact that, you know, I am following suit with that messaging and going against the grain, is that something that, that I should be faulted for? Or is that something that we should be doing as, as government, looking after the people that need it the most? I,
0: I, guess what, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, and you detail this in, in your book, that, that people came to you with, you know, like you saying, you can get more done inside the tent than outside the tent. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you can address that.
2: Well, you can get a lot done inside the tent. And I did get a lot done inside the tent when it comes to um, supports for mental health, when it comes to raising awareness. Um, but then sometimes it is required, especially when, you know, the, 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 the people within the tent are not leveraging me for my brain, not leveraging me for, for more of my strategic abilities, but parading me around like, like, a, to- like a token. And it's an embarrassing position to be in, um, and excluding me from conversations that allow me to be a little bit more strategic. I I don't I don't believe that that is something that that's a, that I should stay in within a tent that no longer values my contribution to the work being done.
0: What would your message be um, to the voters in? In your area, when we come to the next federal election, where should they put their trust? Where should they mark their ballot?
2: You know, I, that's that's not up to me to determine how people vote or what, what where they put that mark on their ballot. I would say that we need to be cognizant of the fact that the power has always been with the people and we should be pushing our government to do better. If they make promises, um, we should be holding them to account. We should be pushing them to... To, to do the things that we know are going to create equity in our communities. And um, that happens not just at, on voting day, on election day, it happens every day of the year. And I think that's more important than where they put their vote, it's holding those that they vote to account.
0: I'm wondering what the experience has been of, of having a, a book out in the midst of a pandemic and obviously in the midst of conversations about race. Uh, what we've seen in the last year, and, and how, that, how that process has been for you. It must have been very interesting to, to be out there talking about this in a time when we're, we're all uh, virtual and remote.
2: Uh, so I've, I've never put out a book the traditional way, so this is the only <laughs> way I know how. Right? So, so I'm rolling with the punches right now. I'm enjoying doing these interviews, so it's, uh, it actually allows me to do back-to-back-to-back interviews in a way that I couldn't do them before. So I'm appreciating it I'm, I'm I'm taking the blessings with the with the curse of the pandemic as well
0: but and also the the subject matter too it, it it's just yeah it, it's it, it's there has been a reckoning and let, let me ask you this do you have confidence that the changes that we've seen promised in the wake of George floyd will be any different than the promises that were made by the Trudeau government when it first came to power?
2: So let's be clear, um, you know, a lot of what's written in my book is a microcosm, I think, of what is happening on a larger scale. So when we think about, um, you know, mandatory minimum, the promise that was made in 2015 to dis- to address the disproportionate um, nature of Black and Indigenous people in, popu- in the prison populations, mandatory minimum has not been repealed. Um, a few weeks ago, we saw letters sent out by ESDC, the Employment Service and Social Development Canada, saying that, you know, Black organizations were not getting federal funding um, because they couldn't determine that their leadership was Black enough. Uh, These are the Ontario Black History Society, Operation Black Black Lives Matter Toronto did not get this funding. Um, You know, when, when it comes to are we actually committing to what we say we're going to do? Are we, go- are we committing to doing the work when the prime minister takes the knee and then stands back up? I think we're seeing some evidence that that is not the case. Um, and if I could give one more example, last week they made a historic announcement around gender-based violence. During a pandemic when we we're seeing a lot of gender-based violence increase, they made an announcement of $2.5 million to hundreds of black organizations during that time. In 2018, one organization got 3.7 million dollars for one program. How, this, this is more examples of that tokenizing, that exclusion, that that destruction that we're talking that I'm talking about in the book on a ma- on a macro level. And this is what's harming communities. This is what's harming families. And we need to hold our government to account when they make these kinds of promises to do better and actually don't and further tokenize Black communities.
0: Selena, it's been just great having you on. Thank you so much for coming on, and congratulations on the new book.
2: Thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure. Thank you to your listeners as well.
0: That is Selena Caesar who is the former MP for Whitby, and her new book, Can You Hear Me Now?, is out now. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.